Amen. You can remain standing. Thank you, Mark, and to the other worship directors this morning. Appreciate you giving us a venue to express our praise this morning. Turn your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Today, uh, we consider the eighth and ninth plagues. We are studying this narrative, this story of God's provision, mercifully caring for his people and directing them through violent adversity toward them as his people. So I would invite you to look with me and we'll read together the entirety of Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. They shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. They shall eat what is left to you after the hail. They shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. For that is what you're asking. They were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought with it the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. It was such a dense swarm of locusts as had not been seen before, nor ever will it be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. They ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the tree that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. 
neither tree nor plant of the field though through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and he pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and herds remain behind. Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. We do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I am not going to see your face again. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. We trust His Spirit will give us ears to hear it. Before we start with our sermon this morning, as the children are dismissed, I would give you a moment to say hello to each other, and then we'll start here in Exodus chapter 10. We are walking our way through Exodus chapter 10, and the title for this morning's uh, exposition of this narrative is The Hard Heart. Um, We're looking at Pharaoh, and I think it's important for us to understand that we see some things in Pharaoh that are uh, reprehensible things. They're, they're, They're horrible characteristics of the hard heart. And it's easy for us to read the story and think, what a fool Pharaoh is. 
But I want us to understand that we are not guiltless when it comes to being a hard-hearted people. Not only were we born with hard hearts, the promise of the new covenant is to replace that hard stone heart with a heart of flesh. We were born the same way Pharaoh is in the narrative. But also, we sometimes revert to hard-hearted behaviors, even as the people of God. So, just a word of warning, that we can be humble and careful not to quickly separate ourselves from the characteristics we see here of Pharaoh. However, we are thankful that there is a work of the indwelling Spirit of God that certainly does a radical transformation in us, where we can read this story and say, thank the Lord, we are not what we used to be. But in this story, we're reminded pretty vividly about what it means to have a hard heart. There is this conflict being described between the king of kings, Yahweh, and the king who thought he was over every other king. There's this conflict between Yahweh and Pharaoh, which is interesting because for the people, Pharaoh represents the manifestation, the appearing of the god Ra, the most powerful of all Egyptian gods. Pharaoh represents his presence to the people. And here we find Yahweh dominating over Pharaoh as an expression of God's rule over all of his creation. We knew that there was going to be a contest. If you look back, you would find that the first time Moses appeared to Pharaoh and he says, I'm here on behalf of our God, Yahweh, to tell you that he says you have to let all, your peop- all the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is that? I've never even heard his name before. I don't care what he has to say. And you knew right then as a student of Revelation, and you knew as a person who understands that God is jealous to have his name revealed and revered in all of the earth, you knew there was conflict between Yahweh and Pharaoh coming. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing ten punches of God to Pharaoh. And the way we're going to break down these two today is in the context of repentance. Jesus told us to preach to people the need for their repentance. Repentance is a vital part of the gospel. And we see here in Pharaoh an expression of imitation or short-term repentance. So I'm going to break today's sermon, the two plagues, into two parts. The first one is going to be repentance that is not permanent and then repentance that is partial they're synonymous but we see them in different ways pharaoh says okay okay i will do the will of the lord this much and then okay okay i will do the will of the lord for this long and we see those two things today and so that's the way i think it will help us think about breaking these two plagues the first plague is repentance that is not permanent repentance that is not permanent in chapter one god follows his command to go to pharaoh with the reminder to moses that god is in control of pharaoh's unrelenting hardness last sunday a friend of ours here in church had sent me a message asking how do we explain god hardening pharaoh's heart to maybe unbelievers or to new Christians? How do we 
explain that. His question worded exactly this way. How do we address the fairness of God hardening Pharaoh's heart? And I, I had received that question, but last Sunday in the order of service didn't have time to address it. And then Tuesday we had staff meeting and we talked about it. We said, okay, do our people of our church equipped to answer that question? The, the critic of Scripture who comes and says, is, is God fair in hardening Pharaoh's heart? So I want to take a minute as we see verses 1 and 2. Would you look with me at chapter 10, verse 1 and 2? Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And you think, how do we comprehend that God tells his ambassador, his missionary, to go to Pharaoh and it's not going to work? Go to Pharaoh and tell him to do this, but he's not going to because... I have secured that outcome already. That destiny has been established by my hand. I want to take a moment to address these two verses. First of all, I want you to understand that when it comes to Bible study, this is not a passing misinterpretation. Like, well, maybe Moses didn't mean to say that God hardened his heart. Maybe there's some other variant of interpretation. And that's not the case. This isn't a one-off mistake. Because God not only hardens Pharaoh's heart in chapter 9 and then twice here in chapter 10, but the Spirit used Paul to convey in Romans 9 that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened by God. So this isn't a misinterpretation in our English Bible. I also want you to know it's not a single instant. It's not one person in all of time who God ruled over their heart even to hardness. The Bible tells us here that God not only hardened Pharaoh's heart, but his servant's heart as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 reminds us that the fact that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, it does not undermine or undo the reality that our God provides a universal, effectual call to sinners. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 has often been a good reminder to me. We are ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal to the world through us. So the fact that God sovereignly rules over hardening hearts does not undermine the fact that our God is heralding a plea to repentance to the nations. That is what God is like. The weight of the question, I think, rests next in the understanding of fairness. I want you to understand, it's not wrong for you to ask, is our God fair? It's not wrong to ask the question. But it's right to come to a biblical answer. Is our God fair? That, in fact, is what the entirety of Romans is about. Do you remember back when we started the study of Romans, when you were much younger and didn't have children yet? When we started the study of Romans, we came into chapter 1 and verse 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save. But then verse 17, which I would suggest is the theme of Romans. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The Spirit of God gave us the epistle of Romans to answer the question, is God fair? And the question in its answer begins in chapter 1, tells us that all of humanity did not honor God, did not worship God, did not even like to acknowledge God, didn't honor Him and didn't worship Him. That's one thing. But the chapter says they didn't even want to admit He existed. And so three times after each one of those, in Romans chapter 1, they did not honor, they did not worship, they did not even acknowledge the Bible tells us God gave them up. So the question, is it fair for God to deal with Pharaoh, who in, included in humanity, did not honor, did not worship, did not even acknowledge, that's obvious from the narrative, who is this Yahweh? Never heard of him. He did not acknowledge, is it wrong for God to give him up? to his hard-heartedness and even preserve that hard-heartedness through some sovereign function. You know, the picture we've had, uh, the, the strike or the blow, nine of them so far, the plagues, the punching. And you remember the picture, the boxers in the ring and the dominant boxer is landing punch after punch and Pharaoh is receiving those punches, but the dominant boxer has put Pharaoh against the ropes so that he would have long fallen down, but he's being kept on his feet by the punching and the ropes. The question about fairness is a legitimate question. The answer is, it's absolutely fair. What is not fair is grace. The salvation of hard-hearted sinners is gracious, but it's not fair. So when we talk about fairness, hard-hearted people being judged by a sovereign God in their, in their hard-heartedness is fair. It's just. It's right. What is not is any of us who have received a gift of grace that was both unearned by us and undeserved is not fair, but it is gracious. And it compels us to worship the gift giver. I want you to understand also that when we read here in other places that God rules over the hardening of hearts, including Pharaoh's, this does not indicate that God is stingy with his redeeming grace. God did harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? Is God just a cosmic bully? What is God like? Well, look look again with me. Verse 2. So God tells Pharaoh in verse 1, or God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh in verse 1, but I've hardened the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. Verse 2. That, so here's a purpose clause. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? There's a reason. And we get to know the reason. That, you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons, generations, account to them how I have dealt harshly. Uh, the, uh, a modern understanding of that is I have embarrassed Pharaoh. Tell how I have ruled over Pharaoh. 
Tell them what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. I want you to understand this about God. When God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, it is evangelistic in purpose. God's not stingy. God's not wanting to withhold salvation. God hardens the heart of this man and reveals himself in these punches so that people will know he is God. To reveal himself and their need to be humbled to him. This is a beautiful revelation about our God. And I want you to understand that as this happens, there is a right and a good way for us to ask about the fairness. And there is a right and good way for us to understand that it is fair, yet there is grace. So in verse 3 through 6, we see the plague announced. The introduction, the way it comes about, isn't new. However, there's one thing that is new in verse 3. Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh and they said, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How much longer are you going to refuse to humble yourself? That's new. Is it going to take much more? Moses says to Pharaoh. That's the first time. When individuals willingly acknowledge God's sovereignty, or when individuals humble themselves before God, they assume or they take their proper place in the created order. When any of us humbles ourselves before God, we are fulfilling the meaning of our life. When people don't acknowledge God as their Lord, they're in rebellion against their very nature. They rebel against the reason for their existence. People say profound things like, what is the meaning of life? It's to do differently than Pharaoh. It's to humble yourself before God and acknowledge that He is Lord. The meaning of creation, the, the creation order, we are made in His image. Um, um, okay, I'm going to say all the, the words and then try to explain them. The fact that we are created in the image of God is not primarily ontological, but it is vocational. I told you I was going to say all the words. Those are the words. It's not primarily ontological. That just means when I look out over this room, I don't see people who resemble the image of God, right? I don't see visibly like, oh, that's what God looks like. The noses and the, the hair and the ears and the messy, you know, uh, morning hair, whatever. Okay, I don't, that's not the main point of being created in God's image. The main point of being created in God's image is vocational. In other words, God has a particular purpose with his creation, and in his image, we also have that purpose. So the question is, what is God's purpose in his creation? That all the world may know that he is God. That's his purpose. That's what God is up to. That all the world would know that he is God. And he creates us in his image to go and proclaim to all the world and all the nations that he is God. So being created in his image means we do God-like things. Pharaoh is violating his very nature in creation. And so it's good that Moses asks, how much longer? Are you going to continue to violate 
the very reason for life. Isaiah 45, 23 says, From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return empty. To me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. From the creation mandate, made in his image, to Babylon, a people wanting to huddle together and not do the likeness of God and spread his name and his fame through all the earth to the great commission go to all the nations and teach them the Egyptians are being required here to acknowledge the rule of God however reluctantly they will acknowledge it as the blows continue through the plagues one commentator said they could not simply in the privacy of their own minds admit to themselves that Yahweh was impressive. They had to demonstrate their humility to him. Which is, humble yourself before me. Um, would you flip to the cross-reference in Romans 9? I mentioned it earlier, but I just want you to be sure to see it. Paul points to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in Romans 9 and we're reminded there of the purpose of it. Romans 9 and verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. So that, purpose clause, I might show my power in you that the world may know my name and it be proclaimed in all the earth. The purpose of God is to make himself known everywhere. The purpose of us as image bearers is the same. We are in his image. Then in verse 4, this vast nationwide swarm is going to devour everything that hadn't already been left ruined by the hail. verse 7 through 11 Pharaoh tries again to make a plea deal and we're going to see here our theme this artificial repentance Pharaoh's going to say okay okay I don't want trouble so how about this he's not going to fulfill nature's purpose by saying oh, all, right, all right I don't want it to be inconvenienced in life so how about this for striking a bargain the court officials who advise, advise Pharaoh have finally become blunt. They're putting their own life in danger. But they finally look back at Pharaoh and say, you've got to be kidding. How much longer is Moses going to be a snare to us? You know what a snare is? You know what a snare is? It's a trap. It's, it's to have your leg caught in a trap. And the trap is anchored to the ground. And you can't move. You know what the servants are saying? How much longer... Pharaoh, will we be in the captivity of the Israelites? <laughs> That's cool God stuff. Can't you see, the advisors say, Egypt is ruined. The, Pharaoh, the, uh, the advisors look at Pharaoh and say, 
You can kill us if you want to, but if you keep doing this, we're dead anyway. And so in verse 8, we see this partial repentance. Pharaoh asked the question, okay, okay, you can go. Remind me, who, who, who all's going? You, you said you wanted the men to go. Oh, okay. Now, semantically, that's what you said. And, Pharaoh, and Moses says, come on. We're all going to go. Everybody. That's basically the summary. He says, everyone's leaving. No, 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 no. He says, the Lord be with you. Basically, that, that's not a positive way of saying Godspeed. That's saying, oh, no way. If you all leave, the Lord's going to be with you and we'll never see you again. No, uh, why don't just the adults go? Leave the kids here. I will relent and do the will of God that much. That's not repentance, is it? Pharaoh says, I'll give you this much. And then we see in verses 13, or 12 through 20, we see the plague's consequences. God causes these locusts that already existed to be blown by a gentle wind for a day and a night to be blown into the land. From somewhere off to the east, we don't, we don't know. Locusts. Locusts are basically grasshoppers. Their incubation process is a little different, so they have a different color. And of all of the, um, of all of the reproduced grasshoppers, most grasshoppers are are they incubate in a, a very hostile environment, and a lot of them die. But not locusts. They they are bred in the sand, and, and they they hatch, and they they uh, they they're numerous. They they multiply. Locusts are basically grasshoppers, and God produces a wind that blows them into the land. And again, we see that they devastate the land. But then in verse 16 and 17, Pharaoh admits his guilt, asking for forgiveness, requesting that Moses pray and remove the plague, which Moses does. Moses proposed, God, will you answer our prayer? But it is God who disposed of the locust. I want us to understand, again, I want you to be reminded, this is not a hero story about Moses. Moses is a humble and a feeble servant. God is the one who answers his prayer. Some of the seed that is sown of the gospel, Jesus tells us, falls on stony ground. Some of it falls among the edge of the field where the, the, the weeds are. And for a moment, it sprouts up. And we think, ah, conversion. We think, we think new life. But it doesn't bear any fruit. And it's not, in fact, healthy seed. But some falls on fertile soil. And we see what John calls the fruit of repentance. Real repentance. John's doing baptism and the Pharisees come walking down and he says, you generation of snakes... Who has told you to perform fruit in keeping with repentance? Consistently repenting. The Christian life is not a sinless one. It is certainly a forgiven one. But it is most functionally a repenting one. Fruit in keeping with repentance. And that is not what we see here of Pharaoh. And I want you to understand that while we don't sit in the seat of condemnation over Pharaoh because we can relate to hard-heartedness, we do learn 
that what we see in Pharaoh of, okay, okay, I don't want any more of this judgment. I'll give you this much. That is not gospel repentance. Let's go on a little bit more and talk about repentance that is partial. Repentance that is partial. So that the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. In verse 21, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Uh, maybe, maybe we should understand the darkness to be felt. You ever heard people refer to like a heavy darkness? Like, like you can feel, and I get that expression. Maybe some of you have been in places of utter darkness. You've been maybe in a, in a deep cave and they turned off all the lights and you could feel the darkness. It was like on your, your skin. Like, oh, the darkness is heavy. And I, I understand that expression. I don't think, I don't think that that's what Moses was going after here. But rather, there's a, there's a function in, in what is felt. So in other words, there was so much darkness that the people had to feel their way around to get anywhere. They literally had no visible path. They had to feel everything. To fully appreciate this plague, because I've asked you a couple times, are these plagues ascending in severity? And the last one is like no light, night light? And you think, well, okay, I don't think this one's ascending. You could have started with this one. Like all the water of the country turning into blood sounds way worse than the dark. Maybe to some of you, you're like, Muh. no way. The dark is scary. Maybe, maybe. Maybe to the young people, this is the first time in the narrative, they're like, tell me more. How do I overcome the fear of darkness? To really understand the severity of this plague, we have to step out of our culture. I mean, we do all kinds of things at the convenience of electricity or illumination. Imagine if just for a little while, we lost all of that. Well, we would be a mess. For instance... We travel conveniently at nighttime. For, for this culture, for this generation, they were virtually immobilized once the sun went down. In fact, they say things like in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. Like, like when you're walking at night, your only hope is to just say, Lord, you reign. We, we don't ever experience worship like that. Like, oh, I'm in the dark. I have to trust in the Lord now. We do things like turn the light on. We perform a lot of tasks at night. In fact, it's probably unhealthy for us how convenient it is to keep ourselves awake long after the sun has gone down. It's probably unhealthy. We do all kinds of stuff. I mean, we work through the night. Some of you have had third shift jobs. They literally shut the town down. They locked their doors, closed the gates to their courtyard, and shut the city down. We feel pretty safe at night. In fact, there are some things that are kind of enjoyable at night, aren't they? I remember we moved to a small city in central Illinois called Beecher City. It's a weird name when you have to put city in the name just to remind people it's actually a place. Beecher City. And Beecher City was dark at night. There was no night lights. But we lived about 15 miles from a pretty significant city that's 
on the intersection of two major highways. It's called Effingham, Illinois. And I remember when I was young, I was probably in junior high, and I remember those rare occasions where we would drive into Effingham at night, and the lights of an active city would show on both sides of the road. And it was, it was very, uh, I guess, comforting to me. It was like, ah, things can happen after dark. We feel pretty safe at night. They were at the mercy of common thieves and bandits. They were easy prey once it was dark. We might think that night is just another part of the day. They understood that the darkness was essentially chaotic. Any person out in the city at night was assumed, usually correctly, to be a thief, a criminal. Imagine if we were thrust into total darkness, utter darkness. How long would it take us to devolve into immobile, inoperable chaos? Now, there are some questions that are raised for me about this. Like they had candles. Is part of the plague that God made every wick inoperable? Is it so much darkness as they felt their way around the room that they couldn't possibly start a fire to illuminate even just a little bit? When deep and total darkness of the sort that God imposes in this plague falls on a people, it also causes sensory deprivation. In other words, even your very balance is off sorts. You, you, you lose orientation. Am I, I'm in my own house. Am I facing the door, the, the window, the bedroom? Wh- which direction am I even facing? And then you start to feel things that should be familiar, but they're not. And this happened for three days so that no one in Egypt saw another person and no one in Egypt got up from the place they were when the darkness fell on them. I'm not afraid of the dark, but this is a severe punch to the people of Israel, or people of Egypt. The plague is announced in 21 through 23. Moses stretches out his hand over the land toward the heavens and darkness that can be felt falls on the land for three days. And then there's this amazing thing said. In, well, verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. I, man, I wish I could just explain all of that. But the very fact that my mushy comprehension can't even, like, unpack that statement in all of its power, in all of its mystery to you, tells you that the God who has struck this blow on Egypt is an awesome and terrible God. He is not to be grappled with. 
fall into the hands of this God is a terrifying thing. They have light in Goshen. I don't know. Like, everything about me scientifically says, well, if there's light there, then the, there's going to be radiant light. There's going to be a reflected light that's going to kind of cover everywhere else. No, not, not here. You remember when we talked about the other plagues? Standing at the brook and reaching your hand in to all the flies and the locusts? And there's just this wall. Here, but not here. Judgment here, mercy right here. Again, you're standing at a, at a wadi, a little brook. Maybe that's how Goshen is distinguished. And putting your hand into darkness, and it disappears. And pulling it back out. Our God has done this. Our God has undone part of creation. This had never happened anywhere since creation started. Light and darkness. And it's been this way until now when the Creator God takes it back. Pharaoh makes another substantial concession. Another sort of compromise in verse 24. Moses gets this compromise, but it's one that's still measured. Okay, okay, I know the last time you said you wanted all the people to go, they can. Just leave the animals. After all, Egypt barely has any left. From Pharaoh's point of view, keeping the Israelite livestock behind meant they would have to come back for them. They're not going to survive long in the wilderness without any of the animals. It's, it's an agrarian culture. Eventually they're going to want to plant fields. Harvest. They won't have any animals. And not only that, but if you're going to leave the livestock, you don't want them to die, right? Leave some of your people, it's assumed here, behind to take care of them. And Moses says, this is not what God has commanded. Verses 25 and 26. He says, we must take all the animals to sacrifice to the Lord. To sacrifice is to kill an animal and eat it before the Lord. They apparently knew already, as was exhibited in uh, Genesis 8, when, when Noah gets off the ark. In Genesis 13, when God commands Abraham, I'm sorry, uh, 22, 13, when God commands Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. They apparently already knew that if you were to live right before Yahweh, something had to die in your place. Which is important because plague 10 is coming. Moses could assume that the people needed the animals. He wasn't sure which ones he said. I don't know which ones. They all got to come because I don't know which one we're going to offer a sacrifice yet. That hasn't been given as instruction. It will in the Exodus. Moses knew that Israel had been forced to serve Pharaoh. But an underlying theme of the plagues 
is that Moses is expressing a longing for a time when the nation would heartily serve Yahweh. And he says here, all the animals have to come as a means to the greatest end, which is to leave here and serve God. So Pharaoh refuses, and there is this prophetic play on words. Moses says, that's not going to happen. In verse 27 through 29, Pharaoh loses his mind. Which, by the way, hard-hearted people exhibit regularly. A, A literal, functional, irrational behavior. Let's look at verse 27. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me! You be careful to not ever see me again. Because I'm telling you, if you do, you're going to die. Moses replies with, you said it, not me. This is the last time we're going to be together like this. The Lord is going to do the rest from here. All the way back in Exodus chapter 4, God had told Moses, Pharaoh will not relent until I have killed the firstborn of all their people. It was already declared back in chapter 4. And so Moses says, yeah, I I have a feeling. Moses doesn't know how many, right? Like Moses doesn't know, what's the one that's going to be the last one? What's the one that you told me about back in chapter 4 where the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt was going to happen? When's that one coming? And I think this is the moment when Moses hears Pharaoh and says, yeah, I think I know what's next. And he says, Pharaoh, you're the one that said it. This was the last opportunity. I'm leaving. Pharaoh's behavior is wicked. It's outrageous. To threaten the life of Moses is to violate a political principle where a prophet could not be executed. He was a prophet. He was allowed to speak. Yet, Pharaoh says, I'll kill you. Pharaoh Pharaoh acts foolishly, vindictive, not taking any blame himself. His actions are cowardly. He assumes Israel is his enemy. And so he thinks the best way to avoid the next consequence is to tell the messenger, you're not welcome back here to tell me it's coming. I will silence the messenger and maybe ignorance will provide a moment of bliss. The unrepentant heart. Violent. Vindicative. Fear-filled. Pharaoh has witnessed God ruling over creation, even in this one, reversing creation. But what we see is that Pharaoh says, the consequences of my defiance to Yahweh are unwelcome. It's inconvenient for me to consider that the God who I disregard will punish me for it. But Pharaoh doesn't show fruit of repentance. He compromises and says, okay, you can have that, but not this. I'll change this, but not that. And I just want to say to you, Christians, or if you're hearing the gospel, I want you to understand that what you see in Pharaoh is not, in fact, 
fruit of repentance. And therefore, there is no salvation for Pharaoh in what he's done in these, in these sort of fake changes. True repentance is for old things to pass away and all things to become new. The evidence that we are a new creation in Christ in the gospel is meant to be radical, all-encompassing. And so I wonder, how will we continue to either identify true Christian repentance or to walk in a life that is repentant behavior? Let me pray. Father, these two parables remind us again that your rule is absolute. Lord, encourage your people with the reality that you were not going to compromise and allow one of your people to be left behind in your plan of merciful salvation. There was no allowance for young people to be omitted from your covenant promise. There was no allowance for the provision of your people to be lost from the covenant promise. Thank you, Father, that you are a God who has a covenant people and in the covenant people you individually shepherd us. Father, as we see this warning about regret of the consequences of defying Yahweh, remind us that apart from your grace, we would have exhibited that same hard-heartedness, that same foolishness, that same fearfulness, but in producing in us fruit of repentance, you cause old things to pass away and all things to become new. For anyone who is here today and doesn't yet know about gospel repentance, I pray that this story and the, the reading and the, the, the exhortation of your word would be used by your spirit to produce new life. Thank you for allowing us to meet together and to continue in the worship service, humbling ourselves to the authority and the instruction of your word. We pray to you together in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.